0: Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses beginning on page 877. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 18. The the account of Jesus' conversation with one rich, young ruler. Let's read it together. This is the very Word of God. Luke 18, beginning at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, "'Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life?' And Jesus said to him, "'Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone.' You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible for men is possible for God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father God, we do ask for Your blessing. We know that this is Your Word, living and active. We know that by it we have been born again to a living hope, and that by it we will grow up in our salvation. And so we ask that according to Your promise, Your Word would not return to You void this morning, but rather, Father, by Your grace we would receive it, we would love it, and we would bring forth its fruit in our lives to the praise of Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That is the, the bedrock foundation of everything we do here at Trinity. And yet, we acknowledge that different passages resonate differently with different people. You may feel the encouragement of a certain passage more forcefully than I do, or I may feel the conviction of a certain passage more intensely than you. And it's with that in mind that I want you to know that no other story in the Gospels has caused me more consternation in my life than this one. No other passage has convicted me, and even sometimes crushed me, than this story of the rich young ruler. Here we have a man who walked away from Jesus sad because he was not willing to let go of his wealth. He was not willing to walk away from that which which gave him security and, and pleasure and influence and prestige. He was not willing to lose his life. And so he walked away from Jesus sad. And when I read his story, I cannot help But see myself. When I read of this rich young ruler, I I cannot help but see myself, and it it convicts me. And as I said, it even sometimes crushes me. Because I have to ask how often have I failed to follow Jesus because I was clinging to something else? How often have I I clung to some other source of life, to some other source of security, to some other source of of comfort and, and prestige? And therefore, failed to follow after Jesus as I should? How often have I failed to praise God and give Him thanks because I coveted the good gifts that He gave to someone else? How often have I neglected or even sometimes worked against the good of my neighbor in the pursuit of my own interests? How often have I shaded the truth or at least allowed some falsehood to, to be believed in order to build or, or protect my reputation? How often have I hoarded my wealth and ignored the legitimate needs of, of others because I was afraid to make myself poor, that others might be rich? And I could go on. I, I can tell you I, I have done these things more times than I care to count, It's not like once or, or twice when I was young, but these, there have been recurring failures in my life again and again. I have failed to follow Jesus today because I was clinging so tightly to something else. I wonder how many of you have seen the same pattern in your life. Maybe your sins aren't exactly the same as mine. Maybe you don't struggle with the same snares that I do. But you can still see the pattern. You can, you can still see this, this recurring theme of failing to follow Jesus because of some cherished idol that you just weren't willing to give up. I suspect most of you have seen that pattern in your life. And if you haven't, maybe you weren't looking so the question that I want to address this morning is this. How is my, how, how is our ongoing struggle with sin? How is our ongoing struggle and, and our too often failure to lay down our idols and follow Jesus? How is our struggle any different than that of the rich young ruler? How are we any different than this young man who walked away from Jesus sad? Because he wasn't willing to let go of of his money, that's the question. That's the question. I think we have to answer. Otherwise, we are going to be crushed by this text. We're going to be crushed by this story because when we see ourselves in him, we're going to have to wonder, "Where's the hope for me? How am I any different?" To get there, we're going to have to understand this rich young ruler. We're going to have to understand what it is that Jesus is telling him to do. So let's let's look at the passage. In more detail, let's begin simply with the ruler's question. What is it that this man is asking? We're, we're told that, that a ruler asked him, that is, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And so there it is. There's, there's the theme. There's the subject. This is what we're talking about. We are, we are talking about eternal life. And what I want you to notice is that this is the third term that we have had to describe the blessing of salvation in as many paragraphs. In the parable of the Pharisee and the the tax collector, which began in verse 9, Jesus spoke of justification. Then, in telling His disciples to to let the children come to Him, He he spoke of receiving the kingdom. And here, Jesus is asked about inheriting eternal life. And if we're going to understand these passages correctly, we, we have to recognize right up front that each of these phrases refers to the same reality. To be justified is to be declared righteous in God's sight. To be righteous in God's sight is to have a right to the blessings of the covenant, the, right that God, the blessings that God promised to the faithful. And that blessing that God promised to the faithful is an inheritance in the coming kingdom. It is a, a place in the kingdom that He will establish on earth even as it is now in heaven. And life in that coming kingdom is none other than eternal life. So all three of these passages share a common theme. All three teach us something about what we might call the way of salvation. They, they teach us how to be justified or, or how to receive the kingdom or how to inherit eternal life. That's the reason that, that Luke has put them together. And it's only as we read them together that we will properly understand them. But the first thing we need to see then is simply this, that, that this ruler is asking the right question There is no question that is more important than the question that he poses to to Jesus. I I said this two weeks ago and I said it again last Sunday, but it it bears repeating because there are so many today who do not feel or, or perceive the importance of this question people today no doubt people in this room this this morning are, are much more concerned about this life the, their needs here and now on the immediate horizon is what is still their attention they are looking for help now they are looking for help with their anxiety or with their anger they are looking for for help with, in discerning God's will for their life or, or figuring out their calling they are looking for help with their marriage or with their kids or which with their their job. And I want you to hear me say that that the gospel of Jesus Christ does address this worldly concerns. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples in verses 29 and and 30. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or, or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many times more in this time. And we're going to talk more about that, not this morning, but next week. But we'll talk more about that. But, but notice for now, simply this. Notice that Jesus says there are blessings in this time. There are true blessings here and now for those who, who follow Him. But remember Jesus' warning. Jesus asks, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What does it profit a man if he has a great marriage and and raises successful kids and does really meaningful, beneficial, fulfilling work if in the end he loses his soul? The question of how to have eternal life is not the only question. But it is the first question. It is the chief question, the, the foundational question. No other question is more important than this one. In fact... If you don't get this one right, then none of the others really matter. And so we have to see that this is the right question. This is a question that ought to be terribly important to us. We we ought to be concerned with the answer to this question. But what about the way that the ruler asks it? Look again at, at the way that he phrases his question. Notice what he says to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Some commentators and and teachers try to give this guy a hard time for phrasing the question that way. They they think that it reveals a, a legalistic spirit. They think that his his wording suggests that he is somehow trying to earn eternal life because he is asking what he must do. But I'm I'm just not sure that this is correct. Certainly, as the, as the story unfolds, we will see that there is something wrong with this man's heart. We will see that he is possessed by a legalistic spirit. But I'm not sure that there's anything wrong with the way he phrases the question. In fact, I'm not sure how else he could have put it. The fact is that, that not everyone will inherit eternal life. Not everyone will be justified. Not everyone receives the kingdom. And while I believe that that God is fully and absolutely sovereign in salvation, while I believe that God saves sinners and doesn't simply offer them salvation, I also believe that sinners must respond to the gospel in some way if they are to be saved. God's sovereignty does not negate man's responsibility. We don't understand exactly how they fit together. We, We can't fully explain it. We may never be able to explain it. But the Bible teaches both. And so I want you to hear me say it is not wrong to ask what must I do to inherit eternal life. The fact is, there is something that you must do. There is something that you must do if you would inherit the kingdom, if you would be justified, if you would receive eternal life. The question is what? What must a person do? This is the question that Jesus is answering. What is required of us if we would be saved. So let's look at at Jesus' answer. And we'll notice that his answer really comes in three parts. First, Jesus challenges the ruler's salutation. The ruler had addressed Jesus as good teacher. And Jesus replies, why do you call me good? Don't you know that, that no one is good except God alone? Now doesn't that strike you as strange? Jesus is God after all. Why would he he say such a thing? What's going on here? Why does Jesus reply to this young man's seemingly innocent address in such a strange way? Let me first say what's not going on here Jesus is not denying his own goodness. He's not challenging the validity of the ruler's greeting. Now, that may sound obvious, especially in this group. We, we know that Jesus is good, but we need to say it. Jesus isn't saying that he isn't good. But nor is he claiming to be God incarnate, at least not here. Now, hear what I'm saying. He is God incarnate. He, he is God come in, in human flesh, but that's not what he is, he is claiming to this young teacher. There's, there is no way that, that his retort would have led the ruler or anyone else listening to that conclusion. Jesus is not claiming to be God. But if he's not claiming to be God and if he's not denying his own goodness, what is he doing? I believe he is challenging this ruler to face the implications of what he has just said. That do you really know what you're saying when you call me good? Do you, do you really know what you are claiming when you, when you call me a good teacher? And are you ready to accept the implications of such a claim? You see, if Jesus is good, if he is truly good, and if no one is good but, but God alone, that means that, that Jesus is on God's side. Jesus is from God. He, he is with God He is a good teacher, not a false teacher. He speaks the words of God, not the words of of man. And if he is a good teacher sent to us from God, then that has certain implications. Think about it. If Jesus is from God, if he speaks for God, then his words and his commands are to be received as from God. And to reject his words is to reject the very words and, and commands of God. And we know that the Pharisees understood this. We, we know from the way that they reacted to Jesus' question about John the Baptist. Maybe you remember the story. We, we read it in Matthew 21. The Pharisees were, were challenging Jesus. And they were asking Him, Where do you get the authority to do these things? Who, who put you in charge? It's like you know one sibling asking another, who, who made you king? That's basically what the Pharisees are doing. They are, they are asking Jesus, Who gave you the authority to do these things? And as Jesus so often did, he he responded to their question with a question of his own. He asked simply the baptism of John, where did it come from? Was it from God or was it from man? Now Matthew tells us that as the Pharisees debated amongst themselves how they ought to answer this, they, they said to one another, if we say from God, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? Do you hear what they're saying? Do you, do you hear their logic? If we say that he's from God, then he's going to get us. Because if he's from God, then we really should have listened to him. And we didn't. We actually, you know, we're glad he was gone. And so, you know, clearly they understood the significance of saying that John was from God and saying that his baptism was from God. They, they understood what that meant. They understood that if he was from God, from God, then rejecting him was the same as rejecting God And that is exactly what Jesus is challenging this ruler to recognize here. He is in effect asking the ruler to to understand the implications of his address. Are you truly ready to accept what it means to call me good? I want to suggest to you this morning that this is a question that we must all face honestly. Are we prepared to accept the implications of acknowledging Jesus to be a good teacher A teacher from God. For if he is from God, then as we said, we must accept his words as the very words of God. We must accept what he has to say as truth. We may not pick and choose what we will believe or or what we will obey. It is not a, a buffet where we take what we like and leave the rest. A disciple of Jesus may not joyfully accept what he has to say about turning the other cheek, or about loving your neighbor, but then ignore what he has to say about sexuality or about the way of salvation. If we are going to accept Jesus' words, if we are going to be his disciple, we don't get to pick and choose, but rather we submit to him as a good teacher. We submit to him as our master. We accept his words as the very words of God. We must not approach him as one who leans on our own understanding, doing what is right in our own eyes. But whether we must approach him as a disciple, as a learner, as one who receives what he said because he said it, whether we understand it or like it or not. So here's where we are. We, we see that Jesus is challenging this man to face, honestly, the implications of, of calling him a good teacher because Jesus is about to put this man to the test. And he needs to recognize that the one he is speaking to is one who speaks from God. And so with that, let's move to the next part of Jesus' answer. Notice what Jesus says. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And so when Jesus is asked what a person must do to inherit eternal life, he quotes the law, specifically the the second table of the law, except for the the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. He, He, in effect, says to this ruler... There's really no great secret here. There's no secret to inheriting eternal life. The law is clear. It is is straightforward. If you would have eternal life, keep God's law and you will inherit the kingdom. What are we to do with that answer? What are we to make of of the way that Jesus responds to this question? Let's, Let's be honest right up front. This is not the answer that any of us would have given. This is not what any of us would have said if we were asked this question. If, if someone came to us and asked how they should have eternal life, we would have been much more likely to give an answer along the lines of Paul's answer to the Philippian jailer. You remember the story. Paul and, and Silas in Acts 16, they, they find themselves in, in prison, but nevertheless, they, they continue to joyfully worship God. And in response to the extraordinary testimony of their lives, their, their jailer of all people comes to them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Do you remember Paul's reply? Do you remember what he said in response to the jailer's question? It's, it's remarkably similar to the question we have here. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But what did Paul say? Paul's answer was this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be Saved. Isn't that much closer to the answer that, that we would have given? If we were asked this question, isn't that much closer to what we would have said? Of course, it's a summation. It's, it's brief. We would have to expand. We would have to elaborate. But at, at bottom, that's what we would say. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If, if you want to have eternal life, believe. Believe the gospel. We would not say, well, you know the law. Keep that and, and you'll be okay. We, we would never say that. In fact, we would actually challenge someone who said that. We would, we would bring them up on charges. We would try to correct them. We would t- say that they were a false teacher. Because we know what Paul says in, Galatians, uh, in his letter to the Galatians. He says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we would never point someone to works of the law. We would rather point them to faith. And so again, we have to ask... What is Jesus doing? What are we to make of his answer? As we wrestle with that question, we we have to acknowledge a couple things up front. It is not an option on the table for us to say that Jesus got this one wrong. We're we're just not going to go there. And neither are we going to say that Paul got this one wrong. We're not going to try to find some contradiction between them. Instead, we are going to try to understand what Jesus is saying in light of what we know about salvation from the rest of Scripture. But I want you to see something important. We're not only trying to make sense of Jesus' answer in light of what we know from Paul's letters or even from the other Gospels. We have to deal with what Jesus has said in this immediate context. In the passage that Luke himself has has put side by side by side, this is the third passage in a row that has addressed this question of how a person is saved. Don't don't forget that. This is the, the third passage in a row that has dealt with how a person is justified, or how a person receives the kingdom, or how a person inherits eternal life. And so we must read this passage in light of what we have learned from the previous two and so two Sundays ago, what did we see? We, we saw the parable of the Pharisee and the, the tax collector. You, you remember the story. Two men go into the temple to pray. One man uh, thanks God for his righteousness. And the other stands far off beating his breast with his eyes to the ground saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus told us it was this man that went home Justified. It was the tax collector who looked away from himself, who who put no trust in his own righteousness, who who pleaded only the mercy of God. It was this one who went home justified rather than the other. The man who trusted in himself that he was righteous remained under the condemnation of God. We saw the same thing in the next story about the children where where Jesus says that, that if you do not come to be as a child... If you do not come to me with with no claim, with no rights, with with, with no merit, if you do not come to me as a child, then you cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so what do we see? Jesus has taught us in the the two previous passages that it is is when we look away from ourselves, when we look away from our own record, when we look away from our own good works, when we trust only in his mercy, that we will receive the kingdom, that we will be justified, that we will have eternal life life. Jesus has been teaching us that a person is justified not by good works, not by even good works done in the power of the Holy Spirit, but rather a person is justified when he trusts in the mercy of God, which has been poured out in the person of Jesus Christ, who came as a sacrifice for our sins, that by his blood we might have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And I take the time to, to highlight this. I, I take the time to, to belabor this point because I want you to see that what I'm trying to do with this passage is not explain away a passage that doesn't fit with my theology. All right? There's a lot of that going around today. There's a lot of people today who, who find a difficult passage and they say, well, you know, that doesn't really fit with what I like to believe, so let me see if I can just sort of get rid of that. That's not what we are doing here this morning. I'm going to try to explain what Jesus is doing in this passage, but I'm not trying to explain away a difficult passage. Rather, I am trying to understand this passage in the context that Luke himself has given it to us. I'm trying to understand this passage in the context of Scripture as a whole. I'm trying to understand what Luke wanted us to understand. Luke's authorial intent is is still the, the controlling factor here. What is it that Luke wanted us to see? What did Luke want us to understand that Jesus was doing? And I think the first thing that Luke wants us to see is, is rather obvious. What Luke wants us to see is that Jesus is giving this rich young ruler the law. I mean, after all, he, he quotes the second table of the, the Ten Commandments. He, he gives him the law. That's, that's obvious, but why does that matter? Why is that so significant? Why is it so significant that Jesus is giving this man the law? Well, if Jesus is giving this man the law, it means he's not giving him the gospel. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Sounds remarkably similar to what Jesus said to this young man, isn't it? You know the commandments, do them and you will live. The righteousness that is based on the law says, do this and you will live. But Paul goes on to say, but the righteousness based on faith says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. So you need to hear this distinction. You need to have it clear in your mind. The law is not the gospel. And the gospel is not the law. The law says do this and live. The gospel says believe and you will be saved saved so the first thing that we see here is that Jesus is giving this man the law and not the gospel the question is why why would Jesus do this why would Jesus give this man the law when he's when he's asking how to be saved well i think we may assume that Jesus knew it's what this man needed to hear he needed to hear again he needed to to hear afresh the, the demands of the law before he would be ready to hear the good news of the gospel. This man was among those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He was pretty sure. We, we see that in his response to Jesus, do we not? Look again at verse 21. When, when Jesus points him to the law, the man's like, I've been doing that since I was a kid. All these I have kept from my youth. Is that really all you've got for me, is these these laws? I've been doing that for as long as I can. Remember clearly, he, he trusts in himself that he is righteous. He doesn't see himself as a helpless child. He doesn't see himself as a sinner in need of mercy. He, seems as, he sees himself as healthy. He seems, sees himself as able, as, as competent. He just needs to know what to do, and he is sure that he will be able to do it. And Jesus knew this about him. Jesus knew where he was coming from, and so Jesus points him to the law that he might discover his need of grace. I think there's a, there's a pattern here. I don't have time to, to fully explore it this morning. But, but we need to be aware of this. There are people in our own culture, there are people in our own community today who, who do not understand their need of the gospel. They, they think the gospel is a waste of their time. And if you tell them that Jesus died to forgive them for their sins, they will not be impressed. They will not care. Because they have no sense whatsoever that they are sinners justly deserving of God's wrath. And there are times when we need to proclaim the holiness of God and we need to claim the wrath of God against sinners and we need to say to people, listen, the one who made you, made you for himself and he is not happy with what you have done with your life. You have forfeited your right to his blessing. You are under his condemnation and there is nothing you can do about it. That's what Jesus is pointing this man towards. But of course it doesn't seem to work very well, at least not at first. He, he says, as we've said, I, I've been doing that. And so when Jesus hears this, he he pushes further. Notice what Jesus says next. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Again, it's it's vital for us to understand what's going on here. It's, It's vital that we see what Jesus is doing Because if we think that Jesus is finally giving this guy the gospel, he he tried the law, that didn't work, and now he's giving him the gospel. If If we think that, then we will see his walking away as a rejection of the gospel. And if we see his walking away as a rejection of the gospel, when we see ourselves doing the same thing... We will be forced to conclude that we too have rejected the gospel just like him. And if you come to that conclusion, you will be crushed. Because if you think this was your only hope, that if I, what I need to do is I need to finally get my act together and follow Jesus well enough. If I can just do that, then I will have eternal life. If you think that is the gospel, you will die. It will kill you. Just as it kills this rich young man. Man, because here we see that Jesus is not giving him the gospel, but he is continuing to, to give him the law. In fact, he's, he's pushing him to see the, the true significance of this law that he so you know, flippantly thinks that he has kept. He, he's pushing him to see that, that he is not, in fact, a law keeper, but is rather a law breaker. He's pushing him to see that he is, in fact, one justly deserving, not of justification and eternal life, but one who deserves condemnation and wrath. You know that this command that Jesus gives here, it's not one of the Old Testament commands. There's there's no command in the Old Testament that that required everyone to sell all their possessions and give all the proceeds to the poor. But there were commands in the Old Testament. Many of them, countless commands, that required us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And require us to, to use the resources at our disposal to generously serve the needs of, of those without. Widows and, and orphans, the lame and the disabled, foreigners and, and sojourners. Again and again and again we are commanded to, to love these people. To, to use what we have for, for their good and for, and for their benefit. And by giving this command to this rich young ruler, Jesus is exposing his heart. Jesus is exposing that that he has no true concern for the poor. He has no true concern for those in need. As I said, we're going to talk more about this command next week. We're going to talk more about the the challenges of of wealth and the challenges of of following Jesus. But for now, just notice that Jesus is pushing this man to see the shallowness of his law-keeping with respect to his neighbor. But there's more going on than just that. The second thing that Jesus is doing is he's showing this man, not only does he not love his neighbor, but he does not truly love his Lord either. He does not love the Lord with all his heart, soul, strength, and and mind. He has not offered himself to God as a living sacrifice. He has not offered himself as a whole, burnt offering without qualification or or reservation. He is not willing to do whatever God asks of him. Here is a good teacher, a teacher from God standing before him, and he will not submit. There are limits to his devotion, and Jesus is forcing him to face them honestly. You remember the command that God gave to Abraham? It was a command much like this. It wasn't a command that was universal. It wasn't a command given to all people. But it was a command that, that tested Abraham's love, that, that tested his, his faith. God said, sacrifice your son, your beloved son, as a proof of your devotion to me. That's what's going on here. God, through Jesus, is is asking this rich, rich young man to sell everything that he has and to give to the poor because God asked him to. And that's the level of devotion. We may not be given this specific command, but that is the level of devotion that we are all called to. Unqualified, unreserved, fully devoted, living sacrifices, whole burnt offering. But when this rich young man is faced with that test, he walks away sad. He isn't willing to to answer Jesus' call. He isn't willing to do what he's been called to do. And by giving this command, Jesus was forcing this young man to see that he was not, in fact, as righteous as he thought. He was forcing him to see that that he could not be good enough to earn eternal life. He was forcing him to see that he could not be justified by his own works. He was forcing him to see that he could not qualify himself for an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. And by walking away, the rich young ruler demonstrated that he understood He walked away sad because he understood he could not save himself. He couldn't do what was required. And as I said earlier, I see myself in this man. I see myself in the rich young ruler. I I see myself walking away sad because I was clinging to some cherished idols. And when I've done that, I have often found myself later asking, how can I be saved? How can I, a sinner like me, how can one who walks away from Jesus sad, how could I ever be right with God? Have you ever been there? Have you ever truly felt the weight of that question? Have you ever seen your sin and said, how could I possibly be one of His? How could I be a child of God if I did that? How could I be a child of God if I, if I cling to this instead of joyfully clinging to the crucified, how could I be a child of God? Have you' ever been there, if you're, if you're there even this morning, I want you to know that that is exactly what Jesus intends you to feel. You have come to exactly the right conclusion. Notice it's the conclusion that everyone standing around Jesus comes to, verse 26, they, when they hear it, they say, "Who then can be saved?" Jesus if this is what you're talking about. Who can be saved? And that is exactly the right question. That's exactly where Jesus wants you to be. He wants you to feel your utter helplessness. He wants you to see that you cannot be good enough. You cannot qualify yourself. You cannot earn eternal life. But he does not want you to stay there. He doesn't drive you there to to leave you there. Quite the opposite, actually. He is driving you to despair so that you might, for the first time or or you might again, truly hear the good news of the Gospel. He's driving you to despair that you might again or, or, for the first time, feel the refreshing of true and living hope. Jesus knows that it is only when we see ourselves and the rich young ruler that we are ready to hear the gospel. We must see that we cannot do what the good teacher requires. We cannot do what the good teacher demands. We cannot keep the law. With man, it is impossible. We must see this. Because it's only when we see this that we will abandon all hopes of self-salvation. It is only when we hear this and we see this that we will come before God as a helpless child, crying simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And so if you see yourself in the rich young ruler this morning, I've got good news. You're right. You're right. You are the rich young ruler. You've seen yourself correctly you cannot be good enough you cannot earn eternal life you cannot do what is required with man it is impossible but what is impossible with men is possible with god you cannot qualify yourself for an inheritance of the coming kingdom but he has qualified you He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord, whom He did not spare, but put forward as the sacrifice for our sins that all who believe in Him might not perish, but have eternal life. And because He has done this for us, because He's done it for people like the rich young ruler, because He's done it for people who cannot be good enough, That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the grief it has caused me. I thank you for the ways it has convicted me. I thank you for the ways it has forced me to go again and again and again to the wellspring of the gospel to remember that, that it is not by My works, even works done in the power of Your Spirit, that I am right before You, but it is only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, credited to My account, received by faith alone. Father, may this Gospel fill our hearts and saturate our minds and bring forth an abundant harvest of righteousness in our lives, all to the praise of Your glory and the good of Your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.